Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, body cam legislation emerges from the Elizabeth City protests. Apple comes to the triangle and advice for staying healthy after your COVID vaccination. News about the impact numbers on the COVID vaccine. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. This week, as the body of Andrew Brown Jr. is laid to rest, protests in Elizabeth City continue, demanding public release of body cam footage in the April 21st killing of Brown by sheriff's deputies. Now lawmakers have filed a bill that might eliminate such protests in the future. To talk more about the move, I'd like to welcome Don Blagrove, an attorney and executive director of Emancipate NC. Don, thank you so much for joining us. You know, we're talking about House Bill 698. What can you tell us about it? House Bill 698 would actually, in theory, have completely changed the course of events in Elizabeth City after the killing of Andrew Brown. What this bill would propose to do is put the onus not on the family or the public, uh, but on the law enforcement agency who holds the recording to release the video within 48 hours. Right now, the law states that the custodian, the, the law enforcement custodian of that video um, can show it to the family within three days of the family's request and then must get a court order from a judge to release it to the public. What this bill would do is would be to make it mandatory that the video is released within 48 hours unless law enforcement seeks an order from a judge to stop the release. Why is it so important for the family to be able to see this footage so quickly? And um, does this legislation address the costs involved to do that? It does not address necessarily the costs involved to do that. But again, you have to remember that these are um, locally funded agencies in most instances, local, county, or state funded agencies. And they should have money built into their, uh, built into their current budgets to cover the cost of providing this transparency. And why is it is so important for the family to see this? It's not just important for the family, it's important for the community um, to maintain trust in law enforcement for us to see immediately what exactly happened when it appears that the police have, have behaved themselves in a way that is contrary to the trust that the people have given them. Well, isn't it sometimes safe to hold footage until more information is known about incidents so that, that, so that there can be some control over public reaction? I think that that is actually not safe, it's not better for the community um, because that lack of transparency leads to deep-seated mistrust. If there is an ability for people to see immediately exactly what happened, unredacted, without, without delay, sometimes it helps the community begin the healing process from whatever atrocious behavior has gone on. Let's talk a little bit about the protests in Elizabeth City and whether or not they've had uh, an impact on this legislation and on legislation to, to have this kind of action, even nationwide. I would say 
without question that the activities in Elizabeth City since the murder of Andrew Brown have absolutely created the political expediency to make this piece of legislation move to the top of uh, a priority list for legislators. Uh, it is always the power of the people and creating the political will that gets our legislators and our elected officials to take action. In this case, I believe very strongly that the that the public outcry for the lack of transparency in this case has made it almost necessary for legislators on both sides of the aisle to take this situation or this issue very, very seriously and take steps immediately to try to rectify what appear to be uh, a lack of transparency and a lack of accountability for law enforcement and also an insulation of law enforcement at the expense and the cost of a grieving family. Don Blagrove, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. A buzz is in the air since Apple announced it's building its new campus and engineering hub in North Carolina's Research Triangle Park, bringing with it the promise of over a billion dollars in investment, plus 3,000 six-figure jobs and everything that comes with it. We have with us Deputy Director of Advanced Carolina, Lamecia Whittington, and at-large council member Steve Rao, our political analyst from Morrisville. So happy to have both of you guys with us today. Um, this is quite a win for North Carolina. Have you, uh, Steve, did you see how this came to be? What did it take to get Apple here? Well, I think this has been uh, uh, something that's been in the works for a few years, you know, part of Apple's plans to expand 20,000 jobs in the U.S., uh, leading innovation, and uh, a $300 billion plan, which is now a $430 billion plan. So I was, uh, you know, I wasn't surprised that it happened, but... Uh, uh, was just amazed that, you know, this is one of the, the largest economic development deal probably in the history of the state. Um, and, you know, I would liken it to IBM coming here or Cisco. Uh, and I think it's just a huge, huge boon to the state in terms of our economy. Uh, but it, it comes with a set of challenges as well, which we're going to talk about today. Oh, definitely. And Lamisha, I would just imagine uh, when you heard the news, it's just a positive thing for probably all communities. It's absolutely exciting. I mean, definitely the support with broadband, broadband infrastructure being expanded to our state. We know that our rural communities in certain urban areas are broadband deficit and really impacted our students and how they were able to access their schoolwork during pandemic in addition to college students. And so it's definitely exciting to see that's a part of the uh, infrastructure build out of Apple and also the increase of the 3,000 jobs. Um, again, uh, as Councilman Rowell mentioned, there are challenges that community will be facing in order to access those jobs, especially our gentrified communities that have been moved out of Raleigh. But I know we'll talk again a, a bit more about the challenges. Well, let's go ahead and move to some of that because people would hear this news about Apple coming. Certainly, those 3,000 jobs are going to be needed, are going to be welcome. But what are some of the implications uh, for this move? Sure. Well, let's look at the landscape. So we are expecting from our last census, right, we're about to receive the numbers, uh, that we have increased in a million people in terms of increase in population in North Carolina. Most of uh, that population, that new population of a million people have moved to Raleigh and Charlotte. 
And so when we're talking about an increase in population, we're also talking about an increase for the job market. And so a lot of communities in Raleigh, for folks that have lived in Raleigh, such as myself and other communities who have been protesting on the ground, a lot of folks have experienced gentrification, a lot of family homes, descendants of the folks who actually worked on the plantations pre-emancipation, they post-emancipation still lived here. And so a lot of displacement has happened in those communities, strategic uh, alienation from the council of, you know, uh, Raleigh citizen advisory groups called the CAC, those were eliminated so that community members couldn't elevate their voice or concerns about the gentrification. Programming that was led by black and brown community leaders and some of the community centers, those were effectively eliminated as well, as well as our communities being displaced to outlier rural communities. And what infrastructure is there in those rural communities? Have local elected officials in those communities uh, been brought into the conversation with Apple to make sure that job infrastructure and support for those displaced, new population into rural areas are supported, right? And how about the schools? Are they also receiving part of that uh, uh, budget from Apple and that support uh, in these rural communities where we will see an increase in population? That's some of our concerns. Absolutely. And Steve, we know that part of this deal is for $112.4 million uh, from state income taxes paid by Apple's new employees to flow to a utility fund for broadband roads, bridges, and other infrastructure projects in rural communities. So does this help to address uh, some of those issues, do you think? Well, absolutely. I know Apple's in, intending to invest in, you know, areas in North Carolina, counties that need it. So, you know, water utility infrastructure is one area where we're critically falling behind in North Carolina. You know, roads and transportation, all of these things, I think, are critically important. But I would go back to the urban areas as well. I mean, two, the, the three top things I hear about as a city councilman from Morrisville, the city I have the honor of leading with my colleagues, along with the Triangle Cities is transportation, the you know, roads congested, looking at the census numbers, uh, DOT revenues behind. Are we going to be able to be a part of that conversation to get our fair share of the $100 million right here in the Triangle for the roads and bridges? And then the, from the $120 million, we're excited about broadband because we know Apple's products require 5G, but what about our overcapped schools? So I'm hoping that we can work regionally with Cary and Morrisville and Apex in all these cities in the Triangle in Wake County to make sure that we're getting our fair share working with Wake County schools and our state school system so that we don't have overcrowded schools. And that's and the final thing is affordable housing, which we'll talk about in a minute. I think that if there's only blessing of this economic development, it could trigger uh, you know, the need for affordable housing policies. We've adopted one in Morrisville. And Steve Adler, the mayor of Austin, has warned Triangle officials that they need to really invest in affordable housing. Uh, for the people that are going to work here uh, so that we can get them to live and work in Morrisville and Cary. And then it's also triggering talks among Go Triangle and our DOT officials about accelerating commuter rail. And hopefully we can get President Biden and the Congress to invest in light rail, which we need. So these are good things, right. but they are challenges. Absolutely. And Lamicia, I know that you've done a lot of work and continue to do so uh, um, in the realm of affordable housing. And certainly with Apple coming, already there's talk about um, housing prices going up. They're already high right now. 
That's exactly it. And so as I mentioned before, the displacement, and we call it gentrification of communities, uh, property taxes have already, uh, you know, we saw increase over the past few years, five to 10 years is an increase. We're expecting the exact same increase within Raleigh, Southeast Raleigh, which is where predominantly black and brown communities have resided. And so what does that infrastructure support look like? But also the fact that we need the 500 plus million dollars from our COVID-19 relief money to still be allocated and dispersed to our communities who are still trying to make ends meet to pay pay their rent. Uh, in North Carolina, I've you know stated this in other comments, we have over 35% of all North Carolinians are renters. Uh, a, a high concentration of that is in the Raleigh-Durham area. So what are we doing to make sure that affordable housing is indeed affordable, but also how are we making sure that there's enough units? What does that mean? Is it housing? Is it, is it actual condominiums? Is it, is it apartments? What does that infrastructure look like? And does it actually meet the threshold of what our communities are earning? Not an average based on a new population, the average based on the existing population and what have been the burdens of living here prior to this new infrastructure being placed. That's what we're concerned with. Well, those are all points that must be taken into account and especially in light of some of the things that the that the CEO of Apple has said in response to Apple's announcement. Actually, Senate President Pro Tempore said uh, that there's a reason for this transformative project that this uh, transformative project isn't happening somewhere else. We've spent 10 years enacting a responsible budget, lowering taxes and making regulations reasonable. The winning formula for job creation, that formula combined with education reform and funding is attractive to job creators, big and small. And that's a quote by Senator uh, Phil Berger. Uh, I wanna get your um, reactions on that because I, I think it's interesting that um, and important to note what it was that brought Apple here. Uh, we're gonna talk about something else that, that brought Apple here too, because uh, last summer an Apple announced that their racial equity and justice initiative with uh, $100 million of commitment. And here's what Apple CEO had to say about their reasoning for, for uh, doing that, that equity and uh, racial justice commitment. Today, I'm proud to announce Apple's racial equity and justice initiative with a $100 million commitment. Beginning in the United States and expanding globally over time, the initiative will challenge the systemic barriers to opportunity and dignity that exist for communities of color and particularly for the black community with special focus on issues of education, economic equality, and criminal justice reform. Lamisha, I just want to ask, and, and Steve as well, how do you think communities can leverage uh, what the CEO of Apple has stated as part of his interest um, when it comes to the, the needs of all communities, including the needs for building public schools, the needs for affordable housing, and the need for social um, and uh, racial justice here in North Carolina? Mm-hmm. You know, I can definitely speak to first, you know, we're excited to hear opportunities around economic development um, and how, you know, the gap can, you know, be filled or at least addressed, right, uh, with this incoming corporation. That's exciting. The the offset to that is let's talk about the landscape of Wake County specifically. Uh, we know that black children are more uh, than twice as likely as white children to attend high poverty schools. Uh, we have recently seen the past 10 to 15 years that we are more segregated uh, in 
now than we were in the 60s. That's preposterous. Wake County, 40% of the district's elementary schools are either extremely highly affluent or extremely high poverty. That gap is immense. And so when we're talking about the economic uh, disparity that our communities have looked at, that hasn't uh, uh, neglected schools. So how are we prioritizing undercounted communities that aren't counted in the census, making sure that the funding isn't allocated to them because they aren't seen, right? We know they're there. How are we supporting that structure? How are we supporting the dismantling of school to prison pipeline? Because we know that black students make up of, of uh, the 25% of our students who are, uh, you know, put into the pipeline that receive records uh, that puts them into the penal system. That's an impact on our communities. What will that funding look like to bring in peace mediators, negotiators, social workers, social justice workers? How can we also increase teacher pay? So what is actually the specific rule? What are we going for? Not just saying we want racial equity, not just saying and saying lip service, but what does it actually look like to have a transparent plan to make sure that our black and brown majority schools have an increase in funding, not just an increase in desegregation? And what do I mean by that is most of the time black students and brown students students have to shoulder the burden of going to white schools, which means increased transportation issues. That means displacing them from their already uh, existing communities. How can we make sure their schools are supported and pulled out of poverty so that they have access to just education? It's, Steve, I want to bring you in here because these are all issues that community people can have, uh, have some input on. What do you think it's going to take for them to uh, make sure that there is a great economic opportunity here, but also social justice. And where can Apple fit into that? Well, let's start with economic opportunity first, because, you know, just last week, Dr. Rawls, president of Wake Tech, spoke at the U.S. Senate hearings on the future of workforce training. And one thing that he mentioned was that the Triangle region, where we live right now, uh, people are most least likely to get out of poverty. And that he looked at the community college system as a ladder, a ladder college of opportunity where you can move up. And so I think, first of all, from an economic opportunity, this announcement, and Dr. Rawls has confirmed that, will accelerate the way our community colleges can train our workforce. They're already changing the curriculum of Wake Tech and many of our community colleges. So I think it does give us an opportunity to make sure that all North Carolinians can access these jobs. Some of them may not even have college degrees, but they can get the training they need. So I think that's really, really important for the jobs of the future. Many of these are new jobs. The second thing is from an equity and social justice. I think Secretary of Our Commerce Michelle Sanders said it well to ABC and some of the news networks when she talked about the supplier program, the diversity programs, the ability to you know, provide you know, opportunity for all uh, races and genders to come into Apple. And, and I think the elephant in the room is HB2. I mean, let's not forget and thank our governor for repealing that law. And I want everyone to know that Tim Cook even himself said that the repeal of that law was critical in Apple investing. And in, in so, and I think that was a positive message that our state is a state of inclusivity that's embracing that uh, and, and making sure that we, we, we want our companies to know that when they're investing, they're investing in a state that embraces that inclusivity. So, you know, I think the social equity is so important because it should work for everyone in the system. Absolutely. And um, speaking of infrastructure and transportation, on the national landscape, Republicans have answered President Joe Biden's $1.3 trillion infrastructure plan <clears throat> with their own $568 billion plan that they say is very, very generous. 
Steve, let me ask you, um, what were some of the biggest concerns over Biden's package and how do you think that, that both parties will be able to come together over what's really needed um, in America and particularly for North Carolina? Well, first of all, Deborah, I would say that this is absolutely needed in America. I would liken it to the 1950s and 1960s uh, during the New Deal when, you know, America was spending 3 percent of our GDP on science, on research, on innovation. You know, during that time, we, we created a thousand new airports in our country. And if you look at this infrastructure plan, it's like the president wanting to invest in broadband. Uh, rural electrification, which provided electricity in rural cities. He wants to have electric vehicles, charging stations. So this is incredibly important investment. And, um, and it goes beyond just roads and bridges, and that's the political debate at hand. Uh, you know, Senator Portman and other Republicans are saying that only 7 percent of this bill is going into roads and bridges and that it's investing too much in, you know, uh, worker training or uh, social programs or climate change or care for the elderly. But I think it's important to make all of those investments. Even clean energy is going to create, you know, thousands and millions, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new jobs. Certainly but, will. And I, I hate to interrupt yeah. you, but I do want to bring Lamisha in here. We only yeah. have about 30 seconds left in, our, in this segment. But, Cher, what do you see um, out of these two plans uh, for communities? Absolutely. So we absolutely need to prioritize any plan. And so far, you know, Biden's plan prioritizes funding for affordable housing. Uh, it prioritizes uh, funding support for our senior and elder community. It prioritizes clean jobs and access. And we know that even though clean jobs are coming and going to be a thriving source of healthy jobs, only 7% of all black communities are actually employed by these clean jobs. So when we're talking about economic development, we also need economic responsibility. So our folks aren't accessing dirty jobs and of course, increasing uh, health disparities where we're dealing with cancers and illnesses. We deserve clean jobs and an increase in pay to make ends meet. And, and so all of these things, yes. Well, Absolutely. they're going to impact all of these things. Steve Rao, Lemisha Whittington, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Great to be here. This weekend is Mother's Day, and it will look a lot different than last year's for many families in our state, with the COVID vaccine making way for much-needed hugs and visits. I'd like to welcome Dr. Julius Wilder of Duke Health, who has published on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. Dr. Wilder, thank you so much for being here. Um, nearly 43% of adults in our state have received full COVID vaccination. What can you share about staying safe right now for individuals, households, and communities? Yeah, you know, we, we definitely want to be, uh, you know, positive in light of the fact that we have moved forward vaccination, that we have access to vaccination, um, and that we have done a fairly good job of, of getting much of our community vaccinated. That having been said, um, I think there are two important issues to keep in mind. Number one, we still need to be very smart, use our common sense with respect to washing our hands, social distancing when appropriate and able. Um, and the other piece of this is remembering that unfortunately there still are specific populations that are not vaccinated. And so although we've been able to get much of our, our, of our population vaccinated, we're still working uh, on certain communities to ensure that they are properly vaccinated, particularly communities of color. Well, interestingly enough, we know that the state is working to address disparities, racial disparities in uh, the impact of COVID. But even in vaccinations, we're still seeing disparities. Uh, state data uh, on Mecklenburg County, for example, showed that some of the lowest vaccination rates were in the marginalized communities and some of the highest rates of vaccination are in affluent neighborhoods. What, what light can you shed on that? Sure. Yeah. You know, 
what we have seen play out with COVID-19 is a great sort of case study in the remnants and the impact of ongoing structural racism. And so we saw COVID affect communities of color disproportionately because of the structure within the communities that they live in and the barriers that they have with respect to access to healthcare. Uh, and that same, those same factors, those same mechanisms are driving a lot of what we're seeing right now with vaccination. You know, initially vaccination required to go online. Uh, and, and we know that there is a digital divide uh, that disproportionately and negatively impacts many communities of color, especially black communities and rural communities that impeded their ability to get signed up for vaccination. And then transportation uh, to, you know, the vaccination clinics to get vaccinated, you know, being able to take time off, you know, particularly for two shots. I mean, these are all sort of factors that we know in healthcare play out and contribute to disparities at baseline. And we're seeing these same types of factors play a role with respect to the disparities seen in terms of access to vaccinations. You know, early on, the conversation was all about vaccine hesitancy. Um, but now we're seeing that this really is coming down to vaccine equity. How can we, in an equitable way, ensure everyone has proper access to vaccination? And has a lot to do with the systemic problems within uh, health care. Um, before you leave, I would like to find out, you know, for those families who are going to be doing visiting and have gotten vaccinated and perhaps have children or other people in the home who are not vaccinated, what, what do we need to know about protecting ourselves, what this vaccine really does for us? as we as we you know socialize sure you know we know now that um small gatherings amongst individuals who are vaccinated are safe um certainly you know we want to be wearing masks when able you know even if even if indoors in a gathering with a group of other people um but sitting down with appropriate social distancing uh, particularly in a vaccinated group is safe I would say uh, that if you are a family where many individuals have not been properly vaccinated, um, you, you know, if you are unable to do something with great social distancing outside and spread out, I actually unfortunately would avoid um, you know, any type of social gathering because we are still seeing uh, this disease impact communities, especially communities of color. Um, and so I, I think the key piece is to know if, you, you know, know if you're vaccinated. If you're 10 to 14 days out from your second vaccination, it's probably safe to have a, a nice small indoor gathering, uh, wearing your mask when appropriate, but otherwise taking it off and eating with good social distancing is, is totally safe. So keep it safe this weekend with mom. And happy Mother's Day to you, Dr. Julius happy Wilder. Thank Thanks yes. for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Take care. I want to once again thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag BlackIssuesForum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash BlackIssuesForum or listen at any time with our podcast series on Apple iTunes or Spotify. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.